Hello, everybody, and thank you for downloading the Here We Are podcast. There's a zillion podcasts out there these days. Podcasts are blowing up. How do you choose? There's so many, and you chose mine. Thank you for stopping in for a little edutainment. Speaking of edutainment, my new show, Stand Up Science, thanks to your support, is taken off the test run of eight cities, did uh, so well that I'm committing to even more than I said I was going to. We're going to really make a big tour out of this January through May, and we'll take it from there. But uh, but I, I want to really make this something big. So I'm going to add way more cities than I even uh, said I was going to and planned on and committed to to you guys earlier. So let's just run through a few. And I'm, I'm missing a bunch that I can't say yet because they aren't totally confirmed. But just in January alone, I'm going to be in La Crosse, Wisconsin, Portland, Oregon, San Diego, Los Angeles. Los Angeles has Pete Holmes on the show, by the way, and my good friend Marty Hazelton, the very first guest on the Here We Are podcast. So many fantastic guests on all of these different scientists each week. Again, it's me hosting, and then I bring up a academic to give a talk about their work, and then a comedian in between, and then another science talk, and then all of us on stage doing a panel led by you, the audience, doing a Q&A, and the show has been a hit, going to be in Pittsburgh in January, as well as Lansing, Chicago, Kalamazoo, Royal Oak, Des Moines, Iowa. These aren't all uh, added on to the website just yet, but if you go to shanemoss.com, you can see what is on there, and you can join the email list Find out when you uh, find, and I'll email you when I get to your area. And that's also kind of like a vote for the show to come to your area because the more emails in a given area, uh, the more that help, helps us determine where to take this show, where there's going to be demand for it. So in February, uh, we're going all over the place. There's not a lot filled in in the calendar yet, but. Boston, Massachusetts, Steven Pinker, one of the greatest minds of our generation, is going to be on the show. That show is going to sell out, so make sure and check that one out. New Market, New Hampshire, Portland, Maine, then in March, Asheville, oh, there's a New York trip in there as well, Asheville, Oak Ridge, Tennessee, Nashville, Tennessee, all in March, and a whole bunch more we're putting together. I'm going to be in Cincinnati doing regular stand-up in uh in january and mid-january as well uh in in february i'm going to be in dc going to be doing a live here we are podcast in dc as as well as regular stand-up in new york going to be screening my documentary doing a good trip show doing stand-up science lots more stuff to come thanks for keeping up with what i do please come and check out my stuff live live entertainment is where it's at it's uh you need to get out of the house you need to go out and get entertained don't just come to my stuff please uh i'm telling you just it's so easy to just sit around and and stream content these days i get it and you're tired from work and everything else but do yourself a favor go and check out check out what's happening with maybe some live music or some live events or what's happening at a local museum, something like that. Get out of the house. I couldn't encourage that any more. It's just such an important aspect of life. It takes a little bit of extra effort to get out and do it, but afterwards, the kind of psychological benefits from it are more than you even consciously realize at the time. So, thanks for supporting 
the show. I hope to see you with Stand Up Science and enjoy today's episode. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. Today, I'm talking with professor of political science and adjunct professor of Comparative Religion and Communication at the University of Washington, Seattle. Mark Allen Smith is joining me today. Thank you, Mark. Delighted to be here. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm excited to talk with you. One, we don't talk religion a whole lot on the show. We have in the past. It's something that's uh, definitely of interest to me. I was one of the, like, I just kind of lucked out. I was born into the correct religion. Um, <laughs> <Of course>. my, <laughs> mine is the right one. But what's the utility? What is the use in comparing religions? And then as far as, far as communication, uh, the c- communication aspect, how do I get these other fools on my side to, you know, correct their belief system and get them on board with my, with my in-group <laughs> religion? Well, uh, as far as comparative religion goes, within the study of that, you're trying to find some principles and the ways religion religions operate that apply across multiple religions, while recognizing that there are some distinctive features that every particular religion is going to have. And there's a broad difference between Western monotheism and Eastern religions. You know, Hinduism has more in common with uh, Buddhism and Jainism and you know Islam and Christianity and Judaism all come from the same root. We call them Abrahamic uh, religions, they're all monotheistic. Um, but even across different different East and West, there's going to be certain things that religions do. Um, one of them, they have an explanatory function. They try to explain things about how human beings operate, where the universe comes from, what's the purpose of, of life, those kinds of questions. And then a big part of it also is, is community and identity. Linking to your other question of Uh, how do you communicate to people that you have the best religion? (laughs) Well, the easiest way to do that is to have children because Uh, children will be born into your religion. The vast majority of people around the world, you are the religion that you're born into. Yeah. Why, why convert people when you can just create (laughs) new followers? Exactly. That that's the number one mechanism by which religions grow. Now there's some conversion too. both Christianity and Islam have a, a proselytizing dimension. Um, and so they will try to, to win converts, but the, the bigger factor by far is, is just being born into it. So if you want to grow your religion, have kids, that's the way to do it. Well, can I just like subjugate people? Can I, can I just like for, <laughs> can I, can't I just amass an army of, of, uh, people? Uh, by the way, I haven't told you what my religion <laughs> is yet, but I still, I feel like I can just go on and, and impose my, my religion on others and, and uh, that that surely has to be a little faster than than create than breeding. How how did I'm being so ridiculous right now? For no, I don't think it's a ridiculous thing at all. That has been the way that a lot of religions have spread. Certainly, that's how how Islam spread initially. So Muhammad won, um, you know, some small group of converts in in Mecca, a larger group in, in Medina. But when he spread when, when after he's dead and his followers are spreading it throughout north africa um uh, in, into some of of uh you know asia and then 
parts of Europe moving up into the Iberian Peninsula, that all happens within a few decades. And it happens largely by the sword. It's it's through conquering. And, and people did convert. And of course, when people convert as a result of, uh, you know, force, it's debatable to the, what extent are they, do they really believe it? Or are they just saying they believe it because it's convenient and you don't want to die to at the hands of your, of your rulers. Well, this is a lot of like, uh, South America was kind of the same. If you look at a lot of, um, say if I go into a Mexican restaurant, there's all sorts of uh, Mother Mary, if you yeah. know you're in a good Mexican restaurant, if there's just like tons of like religious sculptures and, and symbols in, that's when you know you're getting the real authentic stuff. But certainly, um, they had different beliefs and those were beliefs that were imposed upon them and then eventually became now you couldn't take them away from uh, uh, those, you couldn't take those beliefs away from them if you tried. Right. Yeah, you could make the same case for North America, too. The Americas had indigenous peoples that had polytheistic religions, and those religions died out in part because the people who held them died out uh, through conquest, through spread of diseases and, and uh, you know, genocide and, and other cases. So that wipes out some of the religion. But even that that survives, you get you get converts. And the reason we have Christianity as the dominant religion in both South and North America now, different versions of Christianity, you know, more Catholic and South America, more Protestant in North America. It's because of colonization. It's It was the religion of England, um, of Portugal, and of Spain. And so that's that's why North and South America are, are largely Christian today. It's, it's just a, a, a product of colonization. Well, because you talked about explanatory function and then, but you also mentioned identity. Uh, to me, it looks like, it looks like religion's main function in our modern society has a f- quite a bit more to do with identity than it does, uh, the explanatory function. Because certainly if people want explanations for, uh, answers to life, we have the internet and we have, mm-hmm. uh, the scientific method and we have a number of, of, tools to determine what looks to be a more um accurate version of reality than uh than what some of uh, say an old testament or whatever might might say of of uh what is reality uh yet religion's still going pretty strong but but if you if you look at what uh you live in a town you have a business um, you, you go to church each week and you see the local community people or you interact with them and then you go to their businesses. They support your business. It seems like, it seems like there's a lot more, um, of the, uh, in, in terms of, in terms of benefiting oneself from religion on a conscious or non-conscious level. It, it seems like there's a lot more, um, uh, in, in the, in the category of identity nowadays, would would you agree? Yeah, I would. I would agree for sure. Um, people they need to feel like they are something. No one is just an amorphous, big, huge mass of uh, of cells. We all feel like we're we're tied to, to something. You might have an, a national identity, um, you know, professional identity, sexual identity, 
geographic identity and religious identity, racial identity, you know, among others. We have all, all kinds of identities. Among those, religion is certainly one of, one of the most important. And the interesting thing about religious identity is, in theory, if you are a member of a religion, you're kind of supposed to believe the things your religion teaches, and you're supposed to engage in the actions that your religion says you're supposed to engage in. But that's not the case for a lot of people. You, you'll, you'll meet your, uh, you know, cheeseburger Jews who um, are quite openly flouting, you know, kosher, and they have no, no problem with it. I mean, some of them go even further, and they might become entirely secular Jews where they're, they don't even believe in God in, in, in some cases, but they'll still hold the identity that it's, and Judaism is kind of special in that respect because it's both a ethnic identity or, or a racial identity and also a, a, a religious identity. And so it's part of your heritage. You you might have some respect for the the tradition, for some of the um, rituals, even if you don't believe that there's a God line behind it who instructed, you know, Moses on Mount Sinai to uh, start this uh, this 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 tradition. Um, and meanwhile, for other religions, like say say Christianity, in this country right now, about seventy percent of Americans will self-identify as as Christian. So if if uh, if I just ask you. Um, well, not you specifically, but you a generally, <laughs> a person, a large uh, random sample, a, a cross section of, of Americans. So, what is your your religion? And you give them some choices. You know, are you are you Catholic? Are you Protestant? Are you Jewish? Are you Muslim? Are you Hindu? Are you um, you know um, Jehovah's Witness? Are you um, pagan, uh, Wiccan, or are you nothing in particular? Um, and I, I, those questions usually also I'll give people the option of, of atheist and agnostic. And the, if you add all of the Christian groups together, it ends up being about 70% of the U.S. population. Mm-hmm. And, but for most of those people, it's, it's an identity. It's what you say you are. How many of those people have set foot in a church in the last year? Well, some of them have, but a lot of them don't. I mean, do, do they necessarily pray? Do, could they you even go to t- a funeral, <laughs> you go to a wedding, you maybe stop in for Christmas. Exactly. Um, but as far as being able to, you know, explain the Trinity, or if you're a Catholic, explain what transubstantiation is and all these, you know, doctrines, um, that some, some are, some are engaging at that level. Others are not. Uh, but the thing about religion as an identity is it can get invoked when it, it comes, um, when it's butting up against other potential identities. So, so I think you're seeing this in, in Europe today, some, to some extent in the United States, as you have Muslim in-migration to areas that historically have not had much Islam, Islamic presence, um, some of the people in those areas are starting to really play up their, their, their Christian identity. And for them, it's, it's not really a matter of, of beliefs. It's a matter of who, who are you? What, what group are you aligning with? Who, what do you consider your, yourself? Um, sometimes that gets merged together with like, you know, the Judeo Christian, uh, you know, heritage, which itself is, is manufactured, right? There there was no such thing as the Judeo Christian heritage until about the 1950s as, as a, uh, a reaction really to the Holocaust and to the sense among a lot of people in the West that how about if we stop demonizing Jews and view them as kind of part of a Western tradition and, and, um, you know, have some intercultural, interfaith dialogue, then you get even this notion of of a Judeo-Christian um, heritage. Well, so 
so I would probably identify as an atheist unless I'm getting like really deep out there. We were talking about Westworld before, before recording. And if I get into thinking about simulation theory and multiverses and that sort of in parallel worlds, I, 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 I these fun little thoughts that I like thinking about them. Maybe I'm an agnostic, but, but I would say an atheist and, and, uh, but, but this isn't, uh, I mean, this isn't a, uh, religion, but there's some identity to it. What, uh, what, are, what are we calling atheism? Why is it's, it's not, it's not quite a belief system, right? It's right. a belief system of non-belief or how do you classify it? You say in the surveys that you ask people, you also would ask people if they're atheists or agnostic. So why, why are they falling on a list? Yeah, I mean, really, to be an atheist, it's the absence of a religion. And, right. and I really love the quote from Ricky Gervais where he says, it's common for people to say that atheism is a religion or to call it a worldview, a, a belief system. And he says, this is absurd. It's just the absence of one particular belief. It, there, there's nothing else that attaches to it. There's, it is no belief system. It is no worldview. And so he says uh, in his quote, if you want to call atheism a religion... That's like calling not skiing a hobby. <laughs> it's right. it's just you 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 lack a, a particular kind of belief. Um, but mo- uh, um, historically in the United States, relatively few people would claim the identity as as an atheist. So if you if you uh, ask in surveys straight up and you give them those choices of different categories to put themselves in, right now it's up to something like three percent will call themselves atheist. So they don't like that label atheist because for a lot of people, when they think atheist, that means militant atheist. That means, you know, I'm uh, cooking babies and eating them. That means I have no moral code. Um, and, and people just, they, they recoil from the term. But meanwhile, you can ask the question another way and you can say, do you believe in God? Yes, no. Well, if you ask it that way, your nose might get up to say 10 or 15%. Mm-hmm. And you would think that a person who says, I don't believe in God is an atheist. That's what the term means. But more people will say, I don't believe in God, than will say, I'm an atheist. Meanwhile, it gets even more complicated than that, because there's a, um, in, in surveys, and really in any kind of social situation, there's a, a social desirability effect. So we like to portray ourselves in a public way that's different than what we might really be. And so uh, historically, and still largely today, it's unpopular to say you don't believe in God. I mean, maybe not as much in your circles and in my circles, but out in the general well, public. Well, we are in pretty cool circles. <laughs> I mean, come yeah, on. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but in the in say the American population more generally, if if you uh-huh. go into most families and you know show up at Thanksgiving dinner, hey, I don't believe in God. Oh, that's not a popular move to make. Mm. And so as a result, a lot of people don't want to acknowledge that. And so there are ways to try to ferret out. Hmm. Are you hiding the fact that you don't believe in God? And so there's a psychologist at the University of Kentucky named uh, Will Gervais, um, same last name as Ricky, but not not related. And and he's got an interesting study where um, there's this there's this method that's been used to to study things that are that are unpopular, right? So um, suppose that I want to know uh, something like: Are you doing cocaine? Are you cheating on your wife? Um, have you ever? Uh, uh, cheated on your taxes have you ever stolen a car you know whatever whatever is this is this a setup am i being set up right now is this am i in a lie detector machine you might be you might be but uh, suppose i want to ask you about one of those things if i just ask you straight up you might lie to me because you don't want to tell me that but another way i could do it is i can ask you 10 questions 
most of which are innocuous. So uh-huh. I can say, tell me um, which of these 10 things have, have you ever done? Been to Las Vegas, driven a Ford car, um, traveled on an airplane, uh, eaten kale, um, and then you throw in there, done cocaine. Now, I don't. if you say I've done four of those items, I don't know which four you've done. And so if you've really done cocaine, but you don't want to admit it, you might say it because you can see that I'm not going to know which of those you've actually done. And so then you can set up a control group where you ask the same questions, except you leave out the done cocaine question. Mm-hmm. And then you can compare the two groups and you can back out from that an estimate of what's the true incidence of whatever unpopular thing you're trying to estimate, whether it's doing cocaine, cheating on your spouse, um, or in this case, being a sane, don't not believing in God. So you can throw in one of those questions is, um, wh- which of these is true of you? You know, I've been to Las Vegas, I've driven a Ford car, I don't believe in God, you know, et cetera. So you have 10 of these and most of the questions are totally innocuous, but you have the one in there that you're interested in, which is, I don't believe in God. And, and through Will uh, Gervais, when he, when he does this, um, he, he finds that you can get an estimate of the, the true incidence of atheism in the American population at something like 25%. There's air, air bars around that because the, the estimates aren't, aren't totally precise. So it, you know, could be higher or lower than that, but that, that's his best estimate of what it is. And so that's a way to try to correct for what we call social desirability effect in surveys, where even if it's totally anonymous and you're not, you know, you're doing it on a computer, at some level, you know that there's a person on the other end of it that is going to be looking at your responses. And maybe you don't want to admit that you don't believe in God because you think that's an unpopular thing. But if you do it this other way, you're, you're willing to say, yeah, actually, I don't believe in God. Hmm. Uh, that's, uh, that is a fascinating little trick. First off, I'd be more embarrassed to admit to eating kale personally. I don't <laughs> care for it. Find it a little, uh-huh. uh, they're overselling the kale to me. I, I find yep. it bitter. Kale chips. Are you kidding me? All my vegan friends are like, well, you'll like kale chips. What? No. I'll just eat fruits and regular old fruits and vegetable, non kale fruits and vegetable. I'm going to get, a lot of guff. Oh, yeah. The, you're, uh, you're on the hook I, now. I, I'm going to get more uh, hate mail from the kale people from, from than any religious people. Um, well, uh, the reason why I, I make this silly point is uh, I wanted to ask, uh, uh, when you talk about people that are up for identifying, I was also curious, is there, a, is there an age demographic that right now, what what is... Uh, if if you're trying to find out the age that has the highest rates of atheism or agnosticism, what age range is that? Or would you even be willing to take a, a ballpark guess at it? Because I'm asking, uh, because when, when you're a child and, and, and growing up, you are most likely going to be the default whatever your parents are raising you to be. Sure. Um, you're also more likely to identify as religious. I think once you're, once you actually have a kid, maybe you weren't going to church that much. Now you have a kid and that's how you're raised. And so this is like this tradition that you do when raising and you get older, people start dying off in your life. You start thinking a little more spiritually or whatever. And then, but then there's also like these teenage years where like, uh, you know, there's this punk feel. There's like, um, uh, anarchy and raging against the machine and, and this rebellion. Oh yeah. Is, is that, is that a time when you're going to see 
more atheism do, do you know i i don't know if this is something that's been studied uh i i have a nasty habit of of asking uh guest questions that that there's perhaps no way that they'd have an answer for but i'm just curious oh no that that's definitely been studied uh quite quite a bit and what we've really got going on are two different phenomena so there's there's um a trend over time and then there's also life cycle effects for each individual and these 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 can happen throughout the population at, at the same time so with the first one the the trend is toward greater levels of non-adherence to religion so there there's this group that we now call the nuns n-o-n-e-s not n-u-n-s it's a little pun i like that more than my kale joke even yeah i enjoyed my kale joke so the the (laughs) The nuns nuns. are are are, um the nuns the non-religious people are becoming more prominent even as the ones that wear the the habit and you know knock uh, kids on the on on the the wrists for acting up in catholic school even as they've become less common so Uh it's it's um the share of the population who in in surveys will say they don't belong to any religion. They their religion is quote none. That's up to now about twenty five percent of the population. Whereas in in nineteen ninety, just you know, a mere twenty eight years ago, um, it was something like six to eight percent. So that's gone up quite a bit in in uh, just two or three decades. So you have that that trend, and it a lot of it's driven by population replacement. So it's the younger people aren't having a religion and then as they get older, they become a larger share of the population. And so that's that's a big part of how the change happens. Um, so, so at any given point in time, older people tend to be more religious than than younger people. Hmm. Um, and and that's, that's part of the second phenomena where there's a, a life cycle effect. So even, even though the long-term trend is more, uh, more people identifying as no religion at all, then if you look at any one person, the least religious part of their life is, is like you say, during the teenage years, early 20s, when a lot of people are, are rebelling. Um, so there's a, a political scientist named uh, Michelle Margolis, who's uh, recently published this uh, book, which which is quite good. And what she shows is um, really better than anybody else has done before this this life cycle effect. She's got really um, excellent data to from a variety of sources to, to show it. So it's a pretty common phenomenon for people to be raised in a religious tradition then during their teenage years and and twenties, uh, they back away from it, partly because they're trying to find themselves, partly because they're moving around. So their their ties with their whatever the, their community is get get severed. They're getting involved in finding jobs, or going to school, or beginning romantic relationships. So a lot of life changes happen during that uh, period, and then uh, a lot of people get married and and have kids. And then once you have have get married and have kids, there's often strong pressure to either reconnect with your own religious tradition or to find a new one. Because a, a fair number of people think, well, I've got kids now, I want to raise them in some kind of a of a faith because they think that's going to you know impart values to the to the kids. We can debate whether that actually <laughs> succeeds, but that's at least the hope. And what M- Michelle Margolis shows is that um, that that ha- that that happens a lot after people get married. Uh, and have kids. But her twist is to show that there's a big partisan effect of this. So one of the things that's happened um, in this country over the last last two or three decades is there's been a lot of religiously inflected issues where the, the Republican and Democratic parties have taken uh, opposing sides. So 
you know, all your issues surrounding homosexuality, same-sex marriage, non-discrimination laws, and so forth. Um, abortion being a big one, going back further, school prayer, um, whether pornography is going to be legal. So a variety of of, of topics where uh, the religious uh, uh, People who the, the conservative religious people, Catholic and Protestant, have been more likely to ally with the Republican Party, finding their positions on these issues to be palatable, and then less religious people, more secular-minded, or people with strong supporting strong separation of church and state, are more likely to identify now as Repu- as Democrats and to vote Democratic in in elections. And so, what Margolis shows is that if you're in this point where your own um, uh, Values m- might be in flux, but you get married and, and have kids and you're looking for some kind of, of uh, religious community for them. If you're already re- a Republican, you're likely to perceive religion as friendly to people like you. So you're more likely to go out and seek it. Whereas if you're a Democrat, even if you are raised in a religious tradition, you're less likely to perceive religion in general as being a favorable kind of institution for you. And then you're less likely to, to, to go out and seek it. And so that's... Um, kind of the key contribution of her book. Yeah, I, I, I've had so many friends that I like, I, you know, I'm not sure they're necessarily believers, but they have kids, they're going to raise their kids. And I've had so many friends be like, well, you know, that's how I was raised, and I turned out all right. And I'm always like, uh-huh. well, did you, first of all? <laughs> I mean, I'm not sure that I did. I'm not sure any of us turned out all right. I don't even know what that means. And then what makes you think it was it was the the belief system that you yourself believed to be incorrect that somehow raised you to be a, a a moral upstanding person? It is it, it is interesting that that uh the uh, many religious people do find this, uh, to be, um, you, you know, this, this source of, of moral authority. And I, because I, you know, uh, you've listened to my podcast and, you know, right. I have a, uh, strong, I, I, uh, um, kind of a big wheelhouse in evolutionary thinking about, mm-hmm. about things is what we like to talk a lot about. And, and in a chicken and egg situation, it seems like morality, uh, it came well before uh, religion and and uh, and morality was caused by uh, came from instincts instincts came from adaptions and adaptions from genes plus environment but right. even even within that i mean even as uh so you might uh, something like homosexuality because it's not your preference uh, it's a turnoff for you, something that you find to be a little gross or whatever. And then to justify your own belief system, you find a belief, uh, a belief system that says, Hey, look, see here. It says, it says on this page of the Bible that right. I Googled and I found the one line that I can, uh, <laughs> that I can pull out of there that kind of says something about homosexuality. Also says in, uh, that, that if you, if you rape a girl, you have to marry her. But we're going to ignore that part. And exactly. and this homosexuality, this this confirms my uh, my belief system. But it's all. It seems like everything. You know, every everyone that I talk to is like, well, it's it's all this equal mix of of genes plus the environment. But it seems like 
It seems like there's a feedback loop with the environment. Say uh, something less controversial like Coca-Cola. Uh, Coca-Cola didn't, certainly didn't invent our inclination toward sweet things. Mm-hmm. Um, they might have branded uh, an, an aspect of much in the same way that our, we have an instinct for, for play and competition. And football happens to be a way in which uh, our culture expresses that, but there's nothing inherent. We didn't, we don't get that from football. It's, it's just a, a specific way in which we express it. So it seems like it's so much more, uh, an instinct or, or, or based in, uh, evolution than it is what the particular cultural environment and, and the cultural environment seems to be, um, the, a kind of phenotypic effect of our of our genes anyway right what's yep. your take on all that so there's a lot in there let me let me just take a stab at it and see if <laughs> see if this uh gives us gives us some starting point we have an assumption today that morality and religion are connected and partly that's because the the religions that we're most familiar with the, the western monotheisms christianity judaism islam as well as the newer versions, you know, Mormonism, which arguably a branch of, of Christianity, they all have scriptures that have a God supposedly lying behind them who either inspired them or in the case of Islam gave the exact wording. And this God cares what you do, is watching you, and has set forth a moral code that you better believe and you better follow or else you're in big trouble. So that's that's the kind of a, an assumption that's that's common in the West. But if you go back in time, um, say to hunter-gatherer societies, which is all that human beings lived in until um, you know Neolithic era, till the dawn of, of civilization of agriculture, um, in hunter-gatherer societies, which we have a pretty good sense of how they are, because there's been enough of them that did survive into you know, the last couple thousand years that, that have been studied and we have, we have some records and, um, you know, documents from visitors and so on. Um, in hunter-gatherer societies, they're, they're almost always polytheistic. They have a, a vibrant spirit world, but these spirits don't particularly care how you act. There might be a god or a spirit of the river or a, a, a spirit of a god of death. And there's a, a spirit that um, or a god that uh, has jurisdiction over this land or over childbirth or over certain, certain uh, aspects of life. Uh, there's, there's a god or spirit that is involved in making it rain and so on. Um, but again, those, 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 um, those gods or spirits, they, they don't particularly care how you act. What they care about is being propitiated. They want to be appeased. They want you to show that you love them and that you're willing to make sacrifices to them um, in order to get them to do things, to bring the rain, to protect women during childbirth, to make it so people don't so people don't get sick, and so um, the scholars of of religion um, across a variety of fields have, have kind of centered in on this idea that the origin of religion it's built upon basic architecture of how our how our minds work, of how our brains work, where when something happens, we're more likely to infer. Um, cause the no cause mm-hmm. so if you think about it you're more at risk from assuming if, if the wind blows in the grass you're more likely to assume well there could be a predator there i better be alert than to say well it's just the wind it's nothing so it's probably just the wind but there's a higher cost in not being attentive to that 
that stimulus and and not being aware that there might be a it, being eaten by a lion will have a higher cost exactly so that's the origin of religion is we we infer cause on things that may be random or maybe natural phenomena like the wind and the weather like th- those get personified as as god so that's Did you the call or- this apophenia then I'm not sure if I'm, yeah, so I know the term, I'm I'm not sure if I'm... It doesn't matter. Yeah. Uh, But so the the idea here is, is, um, religion is built upon how the mind works. We infer causation out in the world. We create gods or spirits that are the source of things that happen that we can't otherwise explain. And that's how hunter-gatherer religions work. But then you say, well, how do we get from hunter-gatherer religions where we have gods that aren't particularly caring about how you behave in the moral domain, how you act toward another human being, toward now we have gods that do care about that. Well, there's a, a group of scholars, uh, especially affiliated with with um, uh, University of British Columbia, and there's a um, one of these, Aranoran Zion, who uh, wrote a, a very good book called Big Gods. And he, he and his colleagues have, have worked on this, this idea. And um, uh, it's the, the notion is, in, ag- in hunter-gatherer societies, you don't need gods who care about how people act. Because if, if your community is only, f- say, 50 people, you all know each other, you tend to be related to each other. If you're sleeping with some other guy's wife, other people are probably going to find out about it. If you're swindling somebody, if you act improperly, if you're taking too big a share of the meat, if you're acting like a jerk, um, since you all know each other, there's mechanisms to keep people in line. But if you go to an agricultural society where now there's a lot of anonymity, it gets bigger. Now you don't know a lot of people. So I'm passing through town. What's to keep me from cheating you as the vendor or you the vendor seeing that, hey, this guy's just passing through. I'm going to I'm going to shortchange him because he's, you know. He, he, he's not going to get I've been back. eyeing some of your books in your office here. You better not, you better not blink. Exactly. <laughs> They'd be gone. So in, in these agricultural societies, all of a sudden the gods start caring about how you act. Mm. And it's not because someone sat down and said, hey, I'm going to make up a new god and you know, the, the new god's going to have these qualities. It's, it's more like um, um, an evolutionary story where there's, people are always throwing out a lot of religious ideas. I mean, just travel through any city. You got all kinds of people pushing all kinds of different ideas. But the, the question is, which ideas will survive? Mm-hmm. And in an agricultural society, it's really beneficial to have some God up there who's watching people, who cares about how we act, who sets forth a, a moral code. Mm-hmm. So if you're like a, a king or an emperor or a prince or any kind of ruler, if you, you, you want your subjects to get along. You want them to pay taxes to you, of course. You want to maintain your power. You want to make sure they don't assassinate you because that's historically one of the major ways you lose power. Um, and in order to set down this code, you could say, here, people, subjects, here's how you should believe. This is what I say. Mm-hmm. Well, your subjects might say, well, why should I believe it? You're just, you're just some guy. But if you can say, well, we have this God, and this God set forth these rules, be nice to each other, don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't murder people, um, you know, be, be kind. If it's, if it's some God that sets forth these rules, it's not my rules as the ruler. This is the God's rules. And then also, this God is up there watching you. So even if you swindle somebody and you get away with it, you're not going to get away with it because this God saw it. This God's going to punish you later on. Mm-hmm. And so in a, in, a, in, an, in a larger society where you have anonymity, it's helpful for social cooperation for there to be a God or multiple gods who are watching what you are doing and who care about how humans act toward each other. And so that's how we get 
from a situation when hunter-gatherer societies where the gods don't or spirits don't really care about what we think of as morality. It's not that those communities don't have morality. It's just it's it's internal. It's among human beings. They don't they don't attribute it to their gods or spirits. But once you get to the large anonymous agricultural societies, now you get gods involved who are setting forth these rules. Mm-hmm. Are we talking about mimetics right now? Kind of. In a way, yeah. So, so if you like, you you have you take ten kings of ten different kingdoms, and they're they're all in communication with God, and they're all kind of spitballing these different ideas. And one king says, uh, "God hates when you have sex, so no one has sex." And then another king says. God loves when you be fruitful and multiply. And then you skip forward a few generations and that king's no longer even there anymore. But there's a whole bunch of people that are being fruitful and multiplying and and loving this idea. Assuming everyone's just going to take whatever the king's word is in each different area. And that's kind of how these ideas are evolving and and almost interacting with genes. Exactly. Yeah, they're interacting with genes. And meanwhile, the other king, the king who who didn't tell you to be fruitful and multiply um, as as what that god in that area was was commanding. Well, that that population might not grow as much if it's if they're following the rules it's not growing at all they're yeah, going extinct they're they're going they're going extinct so um it's it's not a surprise that the kind of re- big religions we have now um biggest one is christianity uh, something like two billion people around the world uh, second biggest islam one 1.8 billion or so both of those are god are, are religions with a god that cares about what you do so a God that's watching you. And there are also religions where this God has commanded you to spread the religion. So that's that's a pretty good you know, mim- mimetic strategy. If you've got one God who says, hey, this religion is just for our people and we're all going to be happy and you know, no reason to bring anybody else in. Well, um, you might survive and that community will have that God, that religion. But if if you're up competing against some other religion that says, no, 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 there's this God and it says the whole world should should belong to this same religion. That religion is going to spread more because the people, some segment of the people are going to be committed to it. They might proselytize to get people to convert voluntarily, or they might colonize and, you know, through conquest, spread the religion that way. Hmm. I mean, it does seem like humans have also one one thing that is exceptional about human evolution is our ability to plan ahead and to have uh, impulse control. And we're not, we're certainly not perfect at it, but we can delay gratification seemingly more than a lot of other uh, species out there, uh, if not all of them. And I wonder if, if some of the kind of memetics helped that along as well. Whereas, we might all want to walk into a place and be like, "Yeah, I want your book. I'm going to take it." Or, I, you know, that that food, I'm going to eat that. But, but there are consequences involved, and it's still given that we still have these tempting. You want to have dessert or whatever, but you can have these. I, I had a. Uh, we were talking recently on a stand-up science show. Uh, a woman did this um, study about having having children do the the marshmallow tests uh, mm-hmm. uh, which we've talked about on the show before but if if you're new to the show you put a marshmallow in front of a kid uh you tell him to wait for 
a few minutes and if he waits so you, or if, if the kid waits they you give you give him a second marshmallow kids have a hard time waiting the couple minutes it's just too tempting for them uh one thing that helps is she has them envision that they're batman and if they envision uh-huh. that they're batman then they act as if they were bat they uh, batman is this perfect moral being so now they're this perfect moral being and they're able to delay gratification there's all this like what would jesus do kind of stuff and it sure. seems like in these monotheistic religions whereas the polytheistic it almost seems like these are pretty explanatory these are almost just like uh, a rudimentary understanding of the laws of physics in a way and understanding like well this is just gravity moves us about and this is how water works and uh, even though they're they didn't have the information at the time. Um, but, uh, but with the monotheistic, it also seems like it came along with like, yeah, there's a God looks a whole lot like me. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, and so there's also this, because there, it seems like there's this book, rational animal. Um, oh man, I'm forgetting that author's name who i had on the show in the first year dan oh shoot i'm bad with names are you, um, are you thinking of the moral animal robert Wright? nope um okay. a rational animal talks about these seven sub selves there's like a night watchman which is like fight or flight um a affiliative sub self for friends uh a, a um uh a, a um, status seeking sub self, knowing, knowing where, where you are and, uh, different, you know, at work, at home, mm-hmm. and in terms of status, uh, there's disease avoidance sub self, there's mate acquisition, mate retention, and child rearing. I, w- I would say there's like an observer in our mind as well for an eighth one. Uh, that's my personal thing. Mm-hmm. And, and, and figured out these various ways of priming these various sub cells. You, you have, you have a restaurant in a, in a dark alley, uh, this cute little restaurant in a dark alley. You have a, another restaurant in a busy popular area and 50% of the time people go one way or another, but then you, uh, show them like a horror movie beforehand. They want to go to the popular restaurant that there's a lot of light there's a lot of people around it's safer you show them a romantic comedy ahead of time they want to go to the little the uh nook in the wall so there's these uh-huh. kind of sub cells within our mind i i do think that there are these kind of um inner worlds that we're working with that these kind of mental representations that are we have to have these we play these various characters in life in these many different roles and uh i think we're trying to kind of communicate because i I be, if I had a higher power, it would be my own brain, I think, is, is a much, uh, quote-unquote, higher, lower, what the difference, uh, east-west, who cares, uh-huh. uh, is, is a, a more substantial computational power than what my conscious awareness is. And I think that consciousness is trying to kind of communicate with your subconscious, non-conscious, unconscious, whatever. Uh, I think we need a better term. But, uh, and, and your, and your, non-conscious is trying to communicate so so your consciousness you're saying i want to exercise today and then your non-conscious world is saying is saying screw that why would i expend a bunch of energy to like it doesn't make any sense to hunter gather to go on a treadmill and run in place and it seems like there's kind of a mismatch between these two worlds inside of your mind right and i think that some memetics over time and it seems like some religions have tapped into like how do you how do you get into those 
inner worlds? How do you create an ideal of yourself, of what you want to be, and then uh, act according to that that ideal that you want to be? Uh, does that make any sense yeah, to you? Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. So I, I think you're, yeah, we're, we're circling around here on the idea of, of religion as being one of the mechanisms that can help solve the self-control problem because um, we are a, a species with a developed prefrontal cortex that separates us out from other primates, from, from, from other mammals, where we have the capacity to plan for the future, but there's always a, a here and now. And there's often a trade-off between do you want to do something that, that feels good right now or that you, know, you, you somehow want to do now, or do you, do you postpone that, or do you do something that's maybe even a little unpleasant now in order to get a greater reward in the future? That, that's the marshmallow study you know, that you mm-hmm. mentioned uh, earlier. And a god who's watching you can be a, a mimetic, a, uh, a meme that, that helps to have you exercise some self-restraint. So there's a lot of times in life where it'd be nice to, uh, you know, steal something or, or, uh, you know, cheat somebody or take a swing at a person who's offending you. Pee outside. <laughs> I, I, sometimes I don't want to wait till I'm out of the bathroom. I just want to go outside. I don't care if there's people around. Exactly. So what's going to keep you from, from peeing in, in front of a, a crowd or doing some other socially <laughs> um, dis, 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 uh, approved action? Well, um, one thing that might do it is if you think there's a God watching you, who's going to punish you if, if you don't? Um, so I mentioned earlier, we got Christianity and Islam as the two biggest religions in the world. Hinduism is the third, and it's, it's, um, could be considered more of a family of religion than, than one religion. But in any case, you're, you're looking at something like 800 million people who are, who are Hindus. Um, and within Hinduism, it doesn't have a single God who is serving this purpose of, of watching you and establishing moral rules, but it does have the concept of karma, which gets there. It kind of achieves the same end, but through a different means. And with karma, instead of a God watching you, the whole notion of cause and effect is built into the fabric of the universe. So if you act improperly, especially improperly relative to your, you know, your dharma, what your, what is appropriate for your caste or for, for what kind of person you are, if you, if you do something wrong, you, you might think you're benefiting now, but it's going to come back around. It's going to get no. you in the future. Someone's going to pee in my yard. Exactly. In front of my kids. <laughs> yeah. And you, you don't want that. Right. So karma does the same thing as, as a god in, trying to stimulate your prefrontal cortex to get you to do the hard thing now instead of taking the easy road now and, and paying the cost later. So it's, um, once again, I'd say it's no coincidence that, the, that we have the, the, the three biggest religions in the world have all managed to figure out a way to encourage you know, what you might call good behavior among people living in large anonymous societies. So what do we do without religion? I mean, uh, so look, I'm, I'm a bad person. I'll say it. I'm an, I'm an atheist. Now, is it, is it, am I a bad person because I'm an atheist or is it just like a double doozy? Is it just Uh a coincidence that I'm also an atheist and a bad person? How do you, I mean, if, if I don't, if I don't have this, uh, this wonderfully structured uh, belief system in this, in this book of morals of these 10 commandments, I mean, how, how do I, 
how do I, what's to stop me from doing a bunch of lollygagging around and a bunch of horseplay and, and, uh, and just general wickedness? Uh, what's to stop any of that from happening? One answer is, is the state. So the, during the, the time, you know, 2000 years ago, 3000 years ago, when, when, uh, these modern religions, when the ideas that eventually formed them are, are, are starting to develop at that point, state apparatus was extremely weak. You might have a ruler, you know, a pharaoh, a prince, a king, an emperor who lives up on the hill, but they're not really ruling in the sense that we think of today. They they don't have much of a bureaucracy out in the hinterlands and the villages. They really don't have much power to enforce their will. So um, they don't have a police force. They might have an, an army or they might raise it when necessary to, you know, fight and conquer land and so on, but they don't have much of a police force to in, enforce um, laws. So you, you really need an external source of law at that point, which is why a God or the concept of karma comes in really handy. But we're now, you know, thousands of, of years later, we've developed state institutions. We now do have a, a police force. So if you want to go out and, and pee in the you know middle of the, the quad on the University of Washington campus, I mean, you can do it. You might get arrested. And if you're showing a little too much of your, your member, you might become a registered sex offender. I almost was once. I had to pee in the in the in New York City in Manhattan at three in the morning, and I was drunk and I peed in the street, and I had to go to court so that I wasn't a registered sex offender. That yeah. is a real thing that I could have. I could right now be a registered. They didn't. They just charged me with a thing. But that's yeah. That's a, this is a that's an enormous social cost for for having to relieve yourself when you're drunk at three in the morning exactly and that will destroy your life to be a registered sex offender because you know now you can't get a job people people will look you up it's uh, hard to rent an apartment i mean um so we have we have and arguably what we've done with with certain kinds of of sex crimes you know if you're like a 19 year old and you sleep with a 17 year old you can you can end up a registered sex offender that way and goes through uh, carries on for the for the rest of your life but yeah. even leaving that aside we have um, a police force we have a state apparatus now that can enforce law in a way that that no no ruler could have done 2000 years ago so in in a sense um this is part of the the uh the the university of uh of uh british columbia group in vancouver and um i'm i i think they're right on this point that you you really needed a a god or karma or or some external means to get people to get along back when we didn't have police forces back when we didn't have a state apparatus that could enforce law now that we do have them in a sense you don't need a religion anymore because um we have we have the, the state to enforce law and and uh, the best example of this is if you look at the Scandinavian countries uh, Sweden Denmark Norway uh, Finland um, Iceland these are countries with among the lowest levels of religious adherence in the world but yet the best functioning society so the lowest levels of crime the uh, lowest levels of, of uh, you know, depression and and other kinds of ailments that that afflict modern society so these are these are these are societies that work well and yet they have low levels of religious adherence why is that well now they have a state that can enforce law and unlike the governments in a lot of parts of the world that are extremely corrupt um you know having a non-corrupt government is i mean we underestimate how valuable that is 
When, when you have a government you can't trust, when you have to bribe in order to get anything to happen, when, when uh, it's so-and-so's brother who's running this and that and, and it's not done efficiently, um, then you, 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 you can't really count on the state to enforce law. And then you have that greater need for religion. But in the Scandinavian countries, their governments work very well. They, they have the lowest, among the lowest levels of, of corruption. So with a very highly functioning state apparatus, in a sense, they don't need religion. And so um, they have highly functioning societies without religion. Hmm. So uh, first off, we're we're now at uh, we're now at about fifty two minutes. I have so many questions and so many things I want to talk about. I'm trying to decide what we're going to pack in. But before, I, so first of all, uh, I want to make sure because we've been, we've been a little bit touching on some of the stuff on an upcoming book that uh, that right. you're. Um, uh, currently writing uh correct and what's the uh what's the working title again working title is is right from wrong why religion fails and reason succeeds so it's going to be an attempt to ground morality entirely in secular terms to show both why you can't ground it religiously with the main reason being these uh books especially in the monotheistic religions that supposedly teach Morality, as you mentioned earlier, it says things like if, uh, you know, man rapes a woman, he has to marry her. But more importantly, she has to marry him. Yeah. And you're like, wait a minute, that that's moral. And then if you're a a religious person um, in the Christian, uh, uh, Jewish, Islam traditions, you find all these creative ways to say, oh, no, the text doesn't really mean that or reinterpret it or that was just for the times. You find some way to get rid of all the bad stuff. And uh, um, and there is good stuff, and so you'll find a way to keep the good stuff. Well, this is really intellectually dishonest because the the text is the text, and to try to try to say claim that it doesn't say what it says, um, that that just doesn't work. So, in, in effect, religious people don't accept their own their own texts. I well, it's always surprising to me when people are like, "Oh, well, it's just a metaphor." Well, yeah, okay. So then why are you, why are you, there's, so's Game of Thrones is a metaphor yep. too. Why not just watch Game of Thrones and get your belief system from that? If it's, if it's just metaphors to like, is it real? And then, but then like, well, the Ten Commandments, those are real, but the other stuff just met, that definitely happened. The other stuff that it was just a metaphor. It is, it's a lot of, uh, it, it's, it seems like a lot of unnecessary, um, mental uh, <laughs> gymnastics uh, to to jump through the number of uh, hoops to kind of logically justify uh, a modern uh, religious belief when it seems like you can do just as well without it, if you ask me. But it is, as you talk about kind of um, uh, culture, uh, so there is this uh, culture progresses and then... Um, uh, religion just kind of gets yanked along and eventually has to get brought up to speed. And all of a sudden, you know, we mentioned gays before, uh, you know, all of a sudden gays are now uh, pretty popular these days. I'd I'd say there's, there's far more people supporting homosexuality than there are homosexuals by a long shot. Right. And, uh, and all of a sudden churches that yeah there's gonna be some churches that are still gonna do quite well and people that are against homosexuality that might be that might be a good thing you you know that might be very profitable for like a church in a given city to be Mm anti-homosexual sure but 
but the majority of them uh, they're, they're losing members because of this so all of a sudden you go like hey guess what we got a we got a gay priest at this one this is the gay church now and yeah. uh and now all of a sudden that church is booming and it's all i mean this is a lot of this is is kind of free market sort of stuff uh yep. contributions happening what what's going to happen um with with the future will will churches keep on adapting like this or will they just slowly disappear i i mean is it so you could take that first and then i have a follow-up question okay I mean, one thing to keep in mind is there's a wide array of, of, of religions. And even within just say the dominant religion in America, Christianity, there's so many different flavors of, of Christianity. So at the same time that there still are some churches that take a hard line on homosexuality and say, no, it's a sin. It's always wrong. And then there are um, some that are, are, you know, called so-called affirming churches or welcoming churches. And then there's others that just don't want to talk about it because it's it's divisive. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a, a range of of positions, but even among the the hardline ones, they're not as hardline as they used to be. Right? Like um, it used to be these gay people, you know, they're evil. They're 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 coming to t- take your kids. They're all pedophiles. You know, these are just despicable people. And now they're more likely to say, well, I, I think that the that the Bible says that homosexuality is a sin. But it's a sin just like lots of other sins, you know, lust, not being generous enough, not being kind to your neighbor. And so we shouldn't single it out as as like the only sin. But yes, it is. It is a sin. So a lot of Christians that are we might call, quote, hard line. That's the sense in which they're they're hard line. They're a lot less hard line than their predecessors were two or three decades ago. So so the the. Um, the the religion eventually does catch up to the culture. Sometimes it takes a long time, uh, but it does eventually catch up. As far as whether religion will, will ever totally go away, I don't think so because uh, of the things we talked about before, that our our brains are, are wired to infer causation, to infer patterns, even when there are none. And an interesting thing among among, for example, young people who are turning away from organized religion that doesn't mean they're becoming, you know, they they have a scientific worldview and they're 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 like using you know rationality and critical thinking. Um, you, you we're seeing among young people a growth in things like astrology. Mm-hmm. So you you might have thought astrology sure. was was dead. Uh uh-uh. uh it's it's growing among among young people. Oh, believe me, I've toured with a show about psychedelics. I'm I'm way into the new agey community, and they are. There's all sorts of supplements and various things that uh, and and energy healers and all sorts of uh, <laughs> all sorts yep. of things that are that are booming these days. That are great fields to get into if you want to make a few bucks. Yep. So all of those things, I think, are they're kind of religion replacements in, mm-hmm. in a certain sense, or or a different kind of religion. And that's just who we are as, as human beings. I mean, for, for someone to have a truly, you know, modern, scientific, rational worldview, that's really hard. It, it, it takes a lot of effort. You, you tend to have to have had, you know, to, to read a lot, a lot of study. There's very few people that, that have that. Uh, there's a lot of people that have kind of a grab bag. You know, they believe a little this, a little that. And a lot of their beliefs, frankly, are contradictory and they mm-hmm. haven't reconciled them. But so why, why do they need to? You know, there's no there's no pressure for them to to do so, and they're just trying to live their lives. Mm-hmm. Do you think that this is kind of my follow up? Do you do you think that religions will evolve kind of unconscious? Do, do you think that people will 
It'll probably be a little bit of both. I'm just wondering if if people will target the things that people are scared of right now, like say terrorism, ooh, or or like uh, flying. People people pray before their their flights. Flying this modern adventure. Will there be uh-huh. like a religion that pops up that like protects you, gives you like a crystal to hold when you're flying or something? Or do you think that it will? Is if you look at the statistical threats to uh humanity like heart disease uh cancer obesity these um uh not necessarily obesity the the, the things that can come along with it um do you do you think that it, stress run away stress i could go on and on about how this is this modern threat the the world that we're in is not as uh, doesn't have as many real threats as it used to um, and, but we still have those same threat detection, uh, that same threat mm-hmm. detection software and kind of, we need to find ways of maybe loosening up. You, you think that there might be religions popping up that are like, uh, uh, more about just like having, <laughs> having fun and being active. There's certainly like CrossFit is borderline occult uh-huh. or, or will there be like, state imposed like tomfoolery or something like where uh, once in a while there's an inspection and if you don't have a cream pie ready to throw in the officer's face like they're they're gonna write you a citation or uh-huh. something hey how how is the world going to change with our new uh, uh, a lot of these religions uh, whether they were trying to or not were formed by the needs of of spreading our genes but now the game has changed in our modern environment how mm-hmm. are religions going to follow do you have any anything to say about it well one thing that that i think is happening is you're getting a lot more do-it-yourself religion um, in order to sustain certainly a strong version of christianity or a strong version of islam you need coercion so in the in the christian uh, west we had uh, roughly 1400 years or, or so once once christianity becomes the dominant religion of of the, the roman empire in, in 380 after the emperor makes it the official religion up to say the 17th century you you had a lot of persecution of heretics of pagans of of jews you had the inquisition if you're pushing beliefs that the church didn't accept that got you banished ostracized sometimes executed burned at the stake and meanwhile in islam it's part of, of Sharia law that if you're an apostate, so if you're if you're a Muslim and you give up your religion, you're supposed to be executed. You get the death penalty. So both Christianity and Islam, and either their 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 history or their their doctrines, they they have um, coercion as as part of what keeps people in line. But the spread of religious freedom in the last few decades has shaken that up, and in certain parts of the Islamic world, it, it hasn't gotten gotten as far. Certainly in Saudi Arabia, you don't want to stand up in the public square and say, "I think that there that Allah is, is fake, and you know, the, the Sharia law should should be disbanded, and, and so on." Um, but in in places where there's religious freedom, it, once you can't coerce people to believe something, they're going to start believing all kinds of stuff, and they're going to start combining things together. And a lot of these people that you find in churches today. You'd be surprised at what kind of grab bag of, of different beliefs they have that are that are sometimes contradictory. So among, um, here's an example, among self-identified evangelicals, people would say they're an evangelical Christian, 20% of them believe in reincarnation. That's that's an Eastern idea. That's that's a Hindu idea that has kind of spread beyond that and then gets imported. And some people like try to 
merge it into Christianity. It, it, it doesn't really fit, but hey, who cares? You know, pe- people believe whatever they want. They, they, they hold a lot of ideas. They don't necessarily know where they come from. And uh, meanwhile, then, like we talked about before, you got other people who've given up organized religion, but they might still believe in some kind of of uh, higher purpose or some kind of some kind of god that might be somewhat a- amorphous. They might throw in a little astrology, some crystals, some some new age stuff, some some you know positive energy. The notion that if you you know if you if you're confident and you think well, energy will flow to you. And there's this idea of. Uh, of uh, you know the law of attraction the secret i'm not sure if you're familiar with that oh i've manifested this whole conversation believe me <laughs> this is the whole drive here i just manifested this it yeah. exactly as i as i attracted it if you want it to be it will be yeah i mean i think you could say that's a modern religious type of claim mm-hmm. and then some of the people who who believe that they just they mix their their stuff together so i think that's the big trend right now is both a retreat away from organized religion but then it's not necessarily a retreat toward rationality and, and, and scientific thinking. It's toward do-it-yourself religion where people are just putting a bunch of ideas together that it works for them. I mean, yeah, I, I f- it feels closer to me. It feels like um, it feels like confidence is this like major player in life that uh, as someone who struggled with confidence their whole life <laughs> and and has has had to work toward mastering it in specific domains so that I can <laughs> so that I can do these interviews so I can stand on stage that sort of thing and make a living uh, it it does seem like something that is important in many aspects of life it certainly seems like uh, if you look at a number of politicians, confidence goes a long way more than oh, yeah. more than content. So it seems like there is something to it that uh, that this is just like another. I, I think that we will isolate. I think science will kind of isolate what's going on there with with something like say confidence and mm-hmm. why it has the uh, uh, sometimes positive outcomes. Sometimes you jump off something that's too high and break yourself as well. Um, uh, and and we'll find new language for teasing that apart but it, it seems like it, at least the idea of like you manifest things you you create these mental models in your mind and they kind of come true is like closer to reality if, if, if i imagine that i want to be in instead of my studio apartment <laughs> a house with a garage and mm-hmm. three bedrooms and uh uh they, they all settle for even two bedrooms in this and and then it seems like that might lead to you sitting and or a person sitting and planning and being like, okay, what does that actually take to make that happen? And then when it's all said and done and you've had your successes with whatever career and whatnot, then you go like, I manifested it. Um, whereas like, okay, that's just like kind of a word for summing up all of the complicated things that happen there. But it seems like a little closer to logic even even if even if the vocabulary uh, involved sounds really wishy-washy you know what i mean yeah no i'm 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 with you i think that the the whole law of attraction the secret that that way of thinking it takes something that's real and then dresses it up and adds adds the supernatural dimension and you call it the quote law of attraction you know that that's absurd right but it's tapping in something real which Mm -hmm. is if you're confident and, and you really want something and you you know envision yourself getting it, you're probably going to be more likely to succeed than if you at the outset say, oh, I'm, I'm always going to fail. That, that, that's never going to work. Mm. Um, so there, there's something real there. And I would say within every religious tradition in, in the world, um, none of which that I, I, I adhere to, 
but but all of them you can find some 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 real wisdom mm-hmm. some uh you know stories or 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 traditions and other things you know art and architecture like there, there's a lot in there that even if you don't accept the supernatural claims you can still say there's something of, of value that we can learn from and 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 so any um any of these newer ideas like the new age stuff or or the you know the neo-pagans the wiccans or anything that, that's cropping up I, I don't you know accept again the the supernatural part of it but i think there, there's something there there's some wisdom to be tapped all right, Mark. I'm I'm keeping you. This is a long one. I feel like we could be talking for eight hours easily. I can go on and on about this stuff all day, but we can't do that. We got a show to get ready for. You're doing stand up science with me tonight. Indeed. Really looking forward to it. Uh, here's what we need. I have my guests each week plug a charity of their choice, and then I want to talk about your book that is available right now, Secular Faith, if you can give people, as long as you want, a, a little, uh, a, throw them a little pitch. What are they What are they going to get out of your book? Sure. So the, the charity that I would plug is called the Center for Inquiry, a bit of a boring title, but it's the leading organization in the country devoted to... Um, the whole realm of, of, of rationality, scientific thinking, secularism, pushing back against all of the mysticism, supernaturalism, you know, religion taking over government and, um, you know, woo, pseudoscience, all that is the Center for Inquiry is, is uh, uh, fighting against it and trying to promote a, a rational way of living and thinking. So that's that's my charity. And then Wonderful. As far as my, my book, uh, Secular Faith, um, subtitle is how uh, religion has trumped culture in American politics. And what I do is I, I, I trace several, several issues, um, slavery, divorce, um, women's rights, homosexuality, and abortion. And I look at how, how the discussions around these change over a period of sometimes years or decades, and in some cases, even centuries, and try to show some of the things we were talking about earlier in that religion tends to adapt and accommodate to the culture. So a lot of people think that that um, the common pattern is for people to derive their values from their religion. When I, and I say it's more of the other way around that you, you, you have certain values that you've gotten from the culture and then you will try to make them compatible with your religion. And if they're not, you'll adjust your religion and change the doctrines in order to, in order to make it work. So that in a sense, religion is a, a, a lagging indicator. So it, it kind of tells you where has the culture been in recent decades. And that over time, the things that religious groups are, are, are pushing will change. And, and partly it is a market dynamic in that if you have a, an environment with religious freedom, you can't f- force anyone to adhere to your religion. And so if you don't keep the people happy, they're gone. And, and so that that's one of the, the drivers to uh, uh, have religion accommodate the culture over a long period. That is fantastic, uh, and I'll tell you what, uh, listeners. I'm, I'm put Mark on the spot here, but uh, listen, I, I'm going to get the book. I, I'm from Mark Secular Faith: How Culture Has Trumped Religion in American Politics, and uh, and I encourage you to as well. And I'm going to read it, and and because you're in Seattle, maybe I'll come back on if you, if you listeners have any questions. Uh, you can write in herewearepodcast.com. Send those questions to me. I'll get them in a document. 
bring them in. I'll read the book and maybe we can do another one talking about your book, Secular Faith, sometime and have a discussion about that. Is that you have to say yes now? It's going to be, it's <laughs> going to be so awkward. It, it you, would. You know, it, it would, would be oh. so weird. To be honest, <laughs> no author has ever declined a chance to talk about their book. I mean, unless they just had too many events or something, but sure. It's, it's something every author wants to do. So. Yeah. Awesome. Well, and, and that would be a great opportunity for the listener. Just because you're in Seattle, you're close enough. I'll, I'll be here. It's a city that I come through again. It'll be an opportunity for me to do this we've never done this before so if you do if you get a chance to read this book first because we talked about his new book coming out today more uh if you get a chance to read this book and send in some questions that would be terrific otherwise thank you guys all for being such wonderful curious people we'll talk with you next week Next week on the Here We Are podcast, I sit down with Renee Magnan. We have a terrific conversation. This is really going into the holidays and and thinking about those New Year's resolutions and whatnot, which, by the way, don't work very well, but still always good to try to commit to some positive changes in your life. Take it real easy, though. Set some small, measurable goals that you can actually achieve and get the ball rolling, get a little momentum in your life. We're going to be talking about that sort of stuff, Uh, how the relationship of feelings and health behaviors in terms of both how feelings uh, influence health decisions, but also how health behaviors influence feelings. Fantastic, terrific conversation. uh, This is, uh, you know, you know now why I do this podcast. The majority of it, uh, sometimes we need to get in there and, and figure out some of the finer details of life that aren't quite as accessible but then we have to uh, the majority of this podcast is podcasts like the one you're going to hear next week that really has to do with everyday life improving our lives creating better lives for ourselves and the people around us i just i i'm very happy that i get to do this and i'm thankful for all of you guys the listeners for tuning in downloading each week for the ratings on iTunes and Stitcher and everything else and uh, the emails that I get from you and checking out the live shows. It's so cool that I get to do this for a living, so thank you. Music brought to you this week by The Long Hunt. Those of you that listen all the way to the end, you are, of course, my favorite.